This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, the 26th chapter, verses 1 through 16. This can be found in the order of service or in the Pew Bibles on pages 831 to 832. Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades. pray together. Oh Lord, will you grant by your spirit that our hearts would be even more uh, forceful, more uh, deeply prompted than the woman to lavish extravagance upon you now because of your gracious death for us and your eternally powerful resurrection. Lord, let us, oh, please open, I pray, by your spirit, the storehouses of our best thoughts and our deepest and strongest affections and grant that as we uh, worship together over this portion of your word that we would be glad and without any hesitation or reluctance, just glad to lavish the best of who we are upon you. Lord, summon from us the responses of love and consecration and gratitude and awe that you are worthy of. And grant that today, for many who are here not yet joined to you, that this would be under your grace the day of their salvation. And I pray in your name, amen. I've been thinking a lot this week about the uh, really um, staggering uh, symmetry in uh, Matthew's gospel in particular, but really in, in the story of Jesus' life that we are given in the New Testament and I've been thinking, as I've been reading this passage and thinking about it, I've been thinking back to uh, the, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And in Matthew 2, in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, you remember that there's this amazing kind of 
uh, juxtaposition of two things. On the one hand, when Jesus is born, the magi or the wise men, they come from the east in response to Jesus' birth, and they bring with them very lavish gifts that, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that they, that they want to lavish on this, on this child because, at the occasion of his birth. But at the very same time, in the very same chapter, there's Herod. And he is planning at the very same moment how he can kill Jesus. And now here we are, over three decades later in Matthew 26, and you see exactly the same juxtaposition, don't you? You see this lavish gift being poured out on Jesus by the woman to commemorate not his birth, but his death. And at this, this incredible extravagance that just is meant to depict the loveliness of Jesus' death, which is the ultimate culmination and goal of his life. But at the very same time, you have the elders and the chief priests planning his death. And even Judas is caught up in the conspiracy. It's amazing. And I think one of the things that we're supposed to see from that is, and that's very important for us to remember at Advent, is that you cannot silo Bethlehem away from Calvary, right? You cannot just think about the manger without thinking about the cross. The meaning of the manger is the cross. And our culture, to the extent that there's any residue of Christmas observance left, and I don't really care what happens in department stores, and neither should you, right? Because we have the true story. But whatever residue is left in our culture uh, tries to separate Calvary from Bethlehem, and God will never, never endorse that. And so this morning, friends, as we're thinking about Jesus' death uh, from our passage, it's, it's good to remember what happens at Calvary because the, the cross at the cross extremes converge, don't they? This is the, the, the taking of the life of Jesus Christ is the ugliest act scarring human history. It is the ugliest thing that has ever happened in history. And yet, at the very same time, right, the most beautiful act in history is the giving of Jesus' life on the cross. And the greatest waste that there could possibly be in human life is not to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. Right? That is the greatest waste. And those are the three themes I want to think with you about this morning from our passage. The ugliness of the cross, the beauty of the cross, and the waste of the cross. So let's, let's think first about the ugliness of the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at our passage, there is a whole lot of ugliness in this passage, and it all centers on the death of Jesus. Did you notice that first? Consider the, the palace plot, what I'll call the palace plot, in verses 3 through 5, where the chief priests and the elders of the people, right, the leading religious leaders, the, the leading clergy, hate that word, the leading clergy, and the leading lay leaders, look at this. Instead of gathering, they're in Caiaphas's house, the high priest's palace, actually. 
And instead of gathering to consider and weigh Jesus' messianic claims, here they are, the top of Israel's uh, religious and social pyramid. And what are they doing? They're gathering to enter into a, a conspiracy to kill him. And they're, they're very politically astute, aren't they? They say, but we've got we've to do this on the sly. What we've got to do is we've got to arrest him secretly because it's, it's Passover and there are tons of people in Jerusalem and there are probably a lot of Galileans in Jerusalem and we have to do this in a smart way. We have to arrest him and accomplish what we want, which is to rub him out, but in a way that saves our own skin and that doesn't provoke a riot. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pervert the justice system. We're going to abuse our power that God has entrusted to us, and we're going to wield those things against Jesus. That's ugly. But it's exactly what Jesus predicted was going to happen, right? From chapter 16, we've seen, right, that Jesus, right after Peter's uh, confession in Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the chief priests and the scribes and that he must be killed. It's an ugliness that isn't a surprise to Jesus. That's the first ugliness in the palace. But then, but then, it's not just outsiders, right? I mean, it's not just outsiders. There's Judas in verses 14 and 16. And here is this insider who is willing to join this conspiracy to murder Jesus. I mean, that, that just that never ceases to stagger me. For three years, for three years, Judas has been loved by Jesus Christ. He has been, uh, Jesus is virtually his constant companion for three years. He has sat under Jesus' teaching for three years with his own two eyes. He has seen He has seen Jesus' miracles, right? With his own two ears, he has heard Jesus' amazing teaching that has has over and over again demonstrated that not only that he has authority unlike uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, but that he speaks with the authority of God, Yahweh himself. Judas has been in, and this is the one that hits home for me with particular force, Judas has been in ministry with Jesus for three years. He's been set apart. He's not just in the, 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 the retinue, the larger retinue that follows Jesus around. He is one of the 12 whom Jesus called to himself specifically as a disciple, right? And whom he commissions in chapter 10 to go out in ministry on Jesus' behalf to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. This Judas is the one who will ultimately prove decisive for the fulfillment of the palace plot, an insider. Now that's sobering, right? The worst sin 
grows in closest proximity to Jesus. So don't think, right? This is sobering for all of us inside the church, right? Don't ever think that the worst sins could never grow inside the church. That is not the case. Because the betrayal and murder of Jesus Christ, friends, I mean, let's just, let's just linger on this for another minute. The, the betrayal and murder of Jesus Christ are the darkest thoughts that ever entered a human mind. They are the, the, the deadliest poison. That plan is the deadliest poison to ever flow through a human heart. It, it is, right, the vilest purpose that has ever been uh, uh, conceived by the will of man or the vilest purpose that's ever been pursued by the will of man. It is the ugliest work ever undertaken by the hands of men. Can you imagine anything worse than that? Of course you can't. It is the, the most blasphemous uh, rejection of stewardship of God's gift that there ever was. That's what the murder and betrayal of Jesus Christ was. And it is ugly and it's in this passage, and it's happening not just from the leaders of Israel, but from within the circle of Jesus' own disciples. Again, not a surprise to him. But there's a third level of ugliness here that surrounds the cross. And it's not from Judas. It's from the other 11 disciples. And you might say, well, where in the world are you getting that? What's, what's so ugly about the other 11 disciples? Well, here's, here's what I think stands out from the passage. It's, what's ugly about the other 11 disciples is what, I, what I, I'll just call their selective numbness. And did you notice, for example, and th- 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 their numbness, first you see it in their unanimous silence. Did you notice when Jesus explains to them in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There is not a single response from the disciples that Matthew records. It's like a blank slate. Now he has predicted his crucifixion already for them. But now he brings it home with an urgency and a nearness. It's going to be only two days off, and there isn't a single response from them. Zero reaction. No anguish, no objections, no grief. That stands out like a sore thumb. And then you add to it. You add to their unanimous silence. Maybe maybe you think I'm being unfair to the disciples. Okay, well, I thought you might say that, so I've set you up, which I love to do. Because they're unanimous again, but this time, and and not in silence, but in anger. Because you notice when they witness in verses 8 and 9, when they witness the woman's gift, look at this. I mean, because you might say, well, Mike, I mean, cut the disciples some slack. Cut them some slack. The, God, the one they love, the one they've been with for three years has just told them that he's only, he's only got two more days before he's going to be crucified. That's going to that's numb them. And I'll say, yes, but not in a good way because it's very selective because as soon as they see the woman lavishing this expensive ointment on Jesus, they unanimously rise up in anger. 
So it's not that they can't feel. It's what they choose to feel strongly about. They are indignant. Do you see this verse 8? And when the disciples saw it, saw what the woman had done, they were indignant. That is a very strong word. It's the same word that's used in chapter 21 to describe the reaction of the chief priests in the temple when they see Jesus walking along and the children following him saying, Hosanna, son of David. That's their reaction to what they perceive as the blasphemy of the children. This is a strong word and they're unanimous in it. So the issue is not whether the disciples can feel deeply, but what they choose to feel deeply about. And that's where it starts to get personal for us. Right? I've never met a person who can't feel deeply. It's just what we choose to feel deeply about. The disciples look at this. uh, When Jesus tells them that he's going to be crucified in two days, zero reaction. When they see the woman, the unnamed woman, break this alabaster container and pour the ointment on Jesus, they're outraged. Their their mercy ministry passion trumps everything else. They have, we should have sold this and given the money to the poor. You see, there's there's a piety, this piety that has nothing to do with the cross. And Jesus immediately interrupts them and says, you're wrong. You don't understand. She gets it, you don't. Oh, friends, it is ugly to be numb in the face of the cross. It is ugly in the eyes of God to be unmoved by the cross. It is not okay. It is ugly in the eyes of God to be moved by football or baseball or bargains or movies and yet to be bored with the cross, unprovoked by the cross. It is ugly to be selectively numb to the death of Jesus. And that's exactly what the disciples are. To lack a strongly positive, life-surrendering response to the willing death of Jesus Christ as the substitute for his people is ugly. It's to join in league with the scribes, with the Pharisees, with the elders, and with the chief priests. You know, sometimes we try to rationalize our numbness and we say things like this to ourselves. Well, you know, I'm just familiar with it. I'm too familiar with it. It's common. But you know, rationalizing uh, our, our numbness or coldness to the prospect of the death of Jesus, the, 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 when the cross is no longer, you know, when, when, when the cross becomes just part of the background in our lives, it's just part of the, it's just one reference point as opposed to the, the center, the thing that holds the center around which the rest of our, our lives are lived. Friends, when, when the cross is out on the periphery, it's a, we're grateful for it on the periphery, grateful for it on the edges, great kind of, kind of salute to it from a distance, but it's not the dominant 
weightiness in our lives, when that's true, let us never try to rationalize or justify that by describing the cross as boring or thinking of it as boring or uninteresting or like we've gotten enough. Friends, trying to rationalize your coldness or my coldness or indifference to the cross by saying somehow that that Jesus is uninteresting or not lovely is like saying that the reason Pluto is cold is because the sun is cold. Now, I don't know what you think, but I still believe Pluto's a planet. What are the first two letters of the word Pluto? P-L. What are the first two letters of the word planet? Thank you. Okay. But I want you to think about this very seriously. Friends, to, to say, hey, you know what? And, and maybe, maybe this is particularly addressed to our non-Christian friends, but maybe, maybe to, to people who've been church for a while and who just are just kind of not drawn in by the cross. And you just say, ah, it just doesn't move me. Well, friends, that has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with you. Pluto's not cold because the sun is cold. Pluto is cold because it's distant from the sun. If Pluto was in Mercury's orbit, it would be hot. The problem is not in the sun. The problem is where you're located. And unlike Pluto, you can change your orbit. You can move closer. I dare you. I dare you in this Advent to bring, by God's grace, bring the orbit of your life closer to the cross. Bring it closer in, and you watch what will happen. Pay attention to it. Be the student of the cross. Sit under the cross. Sit under the wonder of Jesus' death. Let God describe the significance of Jesus' death to you and submit to his explanation and refuse to stay in some distant orbit and to shuff off your indifference to the cross on somehow the inadequacy of Jesus because it's not about his inadequacy. It's about your distance from him. And you are now charged, as I am, with moving our orbit as close as possible to him. So that's the ugliness of the cross. It leaves no one out. But let's think about the beauty of the cross now. You see, unlike the disciples... Unlike the disciples, the prospect of Jesus' death was deeply moving in her heart, wasn't it? She had listened, right? She was a student. How did she know that Jesus, how did she know she needed to prepare Jesus for burial? She's been listening to him. She's been hearing him talk about his death. She actually, she actually thought through what would happen to him. She actually envisioned what would occur. She, she went deep with what he was saying. She heeded him, which is exactly what I was encouraging all of us to do in terms of moving our orbit closer. Let Jesus explain his death to you. Submit to his explanation. And the woman totally gets it, doesn't she? Her piety, unlike the unlike the disciples, is completely riveted by the prospect of his death. She is a woman 
who is fully alive to the reality of Jesus' death. She, in her extravagance, you know, she pours out this expensive ointment. Matthew doesn't tell us and doesn't spend any time tell, asking us to speculate about where she got the ointment or what her name is. That's not what's important in Matthew's narrative. What's important is that a woman, in response to Jesus's, the prospect of Jesus' death, is willing to lavish upon him something that's very expensive, obviously very extravagant. Now, you can see it in the disciples' reaction, Right? And she is willing to do this. And friends, this is so important. What she does in her extravagance is like the gift. Of, it's like a gift from the Holy Spirit to each of us. So that so it's a gift of sight because the disciples don't see the cross for what it is, but she does. She sees the cross through Jesus' eyes. She sees that it is his messianic mission. She sees that the cross is necessary Right? Not just his death. He said he's going to be crucified in verse 2. It's the cross. And she sees that the cross is his messianic mission. And so what does she do? She anoints him as the Messiah. He's the anointed one who goes to the cross. She sees, when she looks at the cross through Jesus' eyes, she sees what he does, which is his own messianic humiliation. She has to prepare him for his burial because she knows that a cross is coming and she knows that no one is likely to want to take a crucified corpse and to give it the traditional burial rites. So she wants to do it ahead of time. He's going to be so isolated, so rejected, so scorned, so so much the off-scouring of the world. She sees it. She sees what the cross is going to involve. It's going to be the judgment of the world saying, this life is worth the least of any life. And she's unwilling to accept or tolerate the world's narrative. She sees his messianic mission, so she anoints him. She sees when she looks at the cross through his eyes, his messianic humiliation. She sees, thirdly, his messianic extravagance when she looks at the cross through his eyes because the extravagance that she is willing to lavish on him. It's an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She, that, that, that extravagance that she lavishes on him kind of anticipates and echoes his uh, own messianic lavishing upon his people from the cross. Her gift is the accurate interpretation of his cross. And his commendation is the accurate interpretation of her gift. Right? What he says to her is really amazing. I mean, I, other than meals... And, and it may be just that I wasn't able to find anything. Other than meals, I can't think uh, of, of anything that anybody has given to Jesus in any of the Gospels once he's an adult. And in this episode, you have, he's always giving to others. And here, you have this woman giving what is just 
just this massive extravagance to him and he commends her right he commends her it's so generous I mean he's about to be crucified and he takes the time to to not only hold the disciples off and say leave her alone what she has done is a beautiful thing to me she is preparing me for burial and guess what wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done is going to be remembered like it is right now in this room somebody who's a no-name it's being remembered by Jesus's command and will that is awesome and it is, it is his commendation of her that shows us the value of uh, this gift. The disciples were seriously wrong, right? Seriously wrong across space and across time. This woman's gift, it's not a waste. It's going to be, it's going to be remembered and it will echo down through every generation of the church. So that's a beautiful thing what the woman has done and she's helped us right it's a gift of sight that that the holy spirit gives us through this record of her to see the beauty of the cross but but really ultimately the most it's it helps us it's a beautiful thing that helps us see the most beautiful thing of all which is jesus's death and his gift of his death the extravagance that he lavishes on the world on sinners right and, and, and let's remember, friends, that you know, when we were thinking about Judas, we said that the, the betrayal and murder of Jesus Christ, they are the darkest thoughts ever to enter the mind of men. They are the, 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 the deadliest poison to ever flow through a human heart. They're the vilest purpose that the human will has ever held on to or pursued. It's the, it's the most vicious logic that there could ever be. And now from the side of Jesus' giving of himself on the cross, friends, what we're being confronted with is the most beautiful thought that ever entered a human mind. The self-giving of this incarnate son. Think about it. If you were going to rank if you were going to rank, if it were possible to do this, if you were going to rank the most beautiful thought ever thought by a human mind, the self-giving of the Son would be that most beautiful thought. It would be the most gorgeous idea. It is the most gorgeous idea that has ever adorned the imagination of men, the self-giving of the Son. Amen? There is no purpose that has ever been cherished by a human heart lovelier than the son's decision to give himself as the substitute for his people. There is no logic that has ever been pursued by, uh, by, by men that is more beautiful than the logic that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. That is the greatest, loveliest logic there has ever been. The good shepherd who's come to lay down his life for the sheep. Is there any logic, any imperative, any purpose that you can imagine that would be more gorgeous, more lovely, more beautiful than that? No, there is none. And the woman's gift, the woman's gift, rather than the disciples' numbness, right, helps us to see what the cross looks like to Jesus. It is the costliest labor 
that has ever been undertaken by the hands of men, and it is the most wonderful stewardship of God's gifts to men that has ever been exercised. That's the beauty of the cross. Friends, our, <clears throat> our minds, I mean, I've been a Christian for 33 years. I'm not done thinking about the cross. I'm not done. I feel like such a beginner. I feel like I have, I f- you know what I feel like? I feel like God, I feel like I'm learning how to do my letters. I feel over and over and over again like what God is doing is he's taking my hand and he's forming the letters of the gospel. I've been a Christian for 33 years. These things are so beautiful. They are so lovely. And and I am so ready to give my thoughts to lesser things. Oh, God is so gracious. This is one of the things that for me, and granted, I'm standing inside of it, I am so utterly convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity and the Lordship of Jesus Christ because because after 33 years, and I have applied myself to the Bible in those 33 years, if this was fake, I would have seen the bottom of the pool. If I dove off, I would have hit the bottom of the pool. Guess what? Hasn't happened. Not going to happen. It's exactly what you would expect if it were true. And for those of you who are skeptical, get off the side. Jump in. Oh, consider the roots of the cross. You want to think about the beauty of the cross, the beautiful gift of Jesus, think about how beautifully deep the roots of the cross are. And we see this very dramatically in our passage. Matthew gives us, in verses 1 through 5, Matthew gives us two interconnected uh, episodes or scenes, and their sequence is very important. The first scene is verses 1 and 2, where Jesus is with his disciples at the end of the Olivet Discourse, right? And then, you know, if we were filming this, there would be a sharp scene change at verse 3, and you would cut from the Mount of Olives, and you would go into the palace of the high priest. See, that's not just, did you notice that when you get to verse 3? And what is so important is to see the sequence of those episodes. It is so beautiful what that sequence reveals, because... Jesus isn't making a prediction in verse 2 that he's going to be crucified. What he's doing is describing a plan. And the plot in the palace is part of his plan. Oh, that's so important. It's part of the beautiful plan that has been prepared from before the foundation of the world like we saw last week in Matthew 25, 30. For friends, that sequence is so important because if it were the other way or Jesus were just making a prediction, then you and I would not be able to stand in awe and very securely before a cross that has roots that run all the way into the farthest depths of eternity, into the heart and willingness of God. But because this has been a plan from the beginning, because the plot to take Jesus' life is part of his plan to give his life. 
That means, friends, that you and I, when we look at the cross, we should rejoice. We should feel so secure. And if you're a non-Christian, you should feel an even more powerful summons to yield your life to God. Christianity is not something that just kind of popped into being in the Middle East uh, in the first century and that, and that Western culture initially and then eventually global culture has been reacting to. No, 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 no. Christianity has been the plan from before the foundation of the world. So the summons that Jesus is issuing today is to put yourself in glad submission to the plan that the heart of the creator of the universe framed before there was any light. Oh, the roots of the cross are deep. And because that plan precedes the palace plot, that's very important because when you see that, when you recognize that, as the Holy Spirit is showing that to us from Matthew 26, again, here we go, another set of interpretive lenses are being given to us by the Holy Spirit. And what it means is is that as we're about to work through chapters 26 and 27, Jesus' betrayal, <clears throat> Jesus' uh, uh, trials, Jesus' scourging, his mocking, uh, all the suffering that he will endure, including his crucifixion, those lenses, seeing that, seeing that his crucifixion is the plan of God's heart means that when we watch all these events unfold that are so brutal and so cruel and so vicious, we are not merely to look at them and say, oh, look at what is happening to Jesus in those events. We're supposed to understand every one of those events as a gift given by Jesus for his people. And now this morning, and in every generation since his resurrection, to his people. His suffering is his gift to you. His willingness to submit, to render himself to Caesar, is his gift to you. It's not simply some tragedy that happened to him. His purpose, they mean it for evil. He means it for good. And the reason that's so important is because the greatest commandment given by God to men is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And when you see that every aspect and facet of Jesus' suffering is not some unfortunate event that just merely happens to him, but his positive giving of a gift for your redemption. Well, guess what is going to stoke the flames of your love for him? That's why that numbness, I just go back to the numbness, the the blameworthy, selective numbness of the disciples. Oh, friends, let us flee that as if the building was burning. We should not be safe with that. You're a covenant child. You've grown up in a covenant home. You've been around the cross all your life. 
friends, my young friends whom I love, who I pray for, how riveted are you in your teenagehood by the cross? When you think of your future, how central is the cross of Jesus Christ to the way that you think about dreams and ambitions and what you're going to study and what life will look like? Is it at the far edges or is it in the center with the commanding center of your life? This is so urgent. And maybe you're an older uh, church member who's been around for years and years and years and years and years and years. And because of your suffering and the things you've lost over the years, the cross has just been pushed by those other things to the edge of your life. So that, yes, out of duty, out of a sincere desire to honor God, you just kind of go through the motions in the Christian life. Oh, friend, do not settle for that. Move close. Bring your orbit in. The roots of the cross run deep, and the fruits of the cross are beautiful. The fruits of the cross. Look at, look at our assurance of pardon. On page 7 of your bulletin. I just want you to look at Ephesians 5.2, which is the the sentence, I've taken the verse markers out here, but it's the, it's the sentence that begins, and walk in love. Do you see that at the bottom of the assurance of pardon? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that's a very interesting image. And, it, and, it, and, it, and this passage called it to mind for me because the woman is, the woman is pouring expensive ointment out on Jesus which would have been full of fragrance, right? And it would have filled the room with its aroma. And here, Paul is describing what happens as the cross, at the cross as Jesus loving his people. It, his life wasn't taken from him. Do you see, again, Jesus, I mean, Paul is, is doing exactly what we were just talking about, which is that it's the intention of Jesus that controls the cross, Right? The, the, the elders and the chief priests and Judas, they may have meant it for evil, but there was a deeper meaning and intention of good for his people that Jesus had that actually uh, accomplished the cross. And at the cross, Paul is saying that Jesus loved us and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that's, he's, that's a very interesting image. Where's he getting that? He's getting that from Leviticus. I know you didn't expect to hear about Leviticus this morning. No extra charge. So what he's doing is he's tapping into this really important Old Testament image, you know, because when you, when you read Leviticus that, and, and all the descriptions of the animal sacrifices that God commands that prefigure the sac- ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah, an essential element of every one of those animal sacrifices, right, is that there will be, it always ends with a soothing, depending on your translation, usually says a soothing aroma rises to God. A soothing aroma, which, and that word that's translated in English, soothing, comes from the verb to rest. And so the picture is the sacrifice, there's been, you know, there's been the substitution, the, the, the sinner lays his hands 
on the animal. The animal is killed. The blood is taken, thrown against the altar. The animal is then dismembered and then put on the altar. And then the conclusion of that whole ark is this soothing aroma that rises to God. And the picture is that in this aroma, in the power of this smell, there is the good news that God's wrath is at rest and that the sinner is now reconciled to God. And Paul, I mean, that's amazing. What's the outcome of all that death and all that blood and all that dismemberment? Peace with God. Peace with God that the sinner knows is peace with God. Assurance. And then later on in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, now listen to this language, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we, this is the phrase that blows me away, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. In other words, you see what the fruit, Paul is telling us two things about the fruits of Jesus' cross that are essential, that are part of the cross's beauty. What, what's produced, my friends, is peace with God, a fragrant offering, these beautiful fruits of the death of Jesus, right? This fragrant offering that brings for once and all finality and reconciliation between the sinner and God. When you put your trust in Christ and his self-giving as the substitute for sinners, you have eternally soothing rest with God. But that aroma of Christ, the perfection of his atonement, the perfection of his sacrifice, the pleasure of God in him is what envelops you. And so everywhere you go as a Christian, you are bringing the evidence of the beautiful fruits of Jesus' achievement. We are the aroma of Christ to God. So beautiful. So how in the world could you waste such beauty? Well, you know what? Our third point, the waste of the cross. You know, I need to be really clear that Jesus doesn't think he wasted his cross. Right? Jesus did not waste his cross. He never thought he was wasting his cross. He doesn't think he wasted his cross, and he never will think that he wasted his cross. And so as we begin Advent this morning, it's just so vital for us to be shocked again and to just be stirred again by this story because you know the son of god i mean this is absolutely amazing the son of god did not regard it a waste of his deity to be conceived and carried in mary's womb he did not consider it a waste of his deity and glory right to be summoned by caesar augustus to bethlehem for a census so that taxes could be collected. 
He didn't regard it a waste of his deity and glory for him to be denied a room in the inn he, or, or to be placed in a manger or to grow up in Nazareth, a nowhere place full of nobodies who were unimportant. He didn't consider it a waste of his deity to be a nursing infant or to be hunted down for slaughter by Herod or to be a refugee in Egypt, to grow up in Nazareth. He didn't consider it a, a, a waste of his deity to, to live one day after another under the authority of sinful parents. He didn't consider it a waste of his glory and his deity to fight sin for his people, to resist temptation, to fulfill the law for them in the most minute detail. This was not a waste to the Son of God. It was not a waste to him, friends to be mocked for his people. It was not a waste for him to be scourged for his people, to bear their judgment or to be ultimately crucified, to die. It was not a waste to him to die, to let his body be placed in a tomb. No, none of that did he count a waste. All of it he counted absolutely necessary in his labor of love for his church. And I think that's the reason, ultimately, why he is so commending of the woman's sacrifice, because it's like a parable. Her extravagance is like a living parable of his extravagance on the world. If we could see the world through Jesus' eyes, we would see an amazing blessing of kindness and grace poured over every part of this globe. And it all comes from the extravagance that he lavished on the world by coming and living and dying and rising again. That's what he has done. Jesus Christ has poured out and is right now at this moment pouring out the extravagance of his grace and mercy on every person here. If you're a Christian, he's doing it again because you need to persevere and he needs to keep you from falling away. And how is he going to do that? But to pour out his beauty, which he did not waste in your salvation, to pour it out again on you. And if you're a non-Christian, he is pouring out the riches of his grace upon you yet again, because I assume that this is not the first time you've been uh, confronted with the claims and call of Christ. And he's doing it again. You know, nothing you or I ever give to or for Jesus in response to his cross, will ever be wasted. I've been a Christian, as I said, for 33 years. And there is not a single thing, and God knows my heart, there's not a single thing that I have given to or for Jesus in response to his death for me that has been a waste. That is my testimony after 33 years as a Christian. No, no energy that I have given to or for him, no effort, no love, no affection, no attention, no ambition, no desire, no obedience that I have rendered to him in 33 years of being a Christian. 
no sacrifice that I have had to make for him, no trust through blinding tears in trials and perplexity, not a single thing do I count wasted. But I cannot and I will not say the same thing about sin. Absolutely everything, creativity, imagination, effort, planning, time, desire, ambition, longing, all of it that I have expended on sin in those 33 years has been a total loss, a total waste. There is nothing that I have given to sin or for sin that has not been a waste. You know, the only regrets that a Christian, are gonna, that a Christian is going to have in the Christian life properly, the only regret we, we should have is over what we haven't given to Jesus. Not what we have. Oh, friends, what beautiful things is the death of Jesus, the willing death of Jesus drawing out of your life Isn't that really how you and I should think about sanctification? Not some drudgery that is imposed upon us kind of as the price for admission to the Christian life, but as the beautiful response of a heart that has been won by the love of Christ. Isn't that the way we ought to think about sanctification? That we would take our most precious things our ambitions, our dreams, the way we think about our future, our health, our money, our abilities, our energy, our time, our retirement, our children, our family, our intellects, all those things that we would just lavish them on him as the response to what he has lavished on us. Oh, the woman is a very wise woman. We don't even know her name. But we don't need to. Yet, anyway. What we need to know is that she saw what Jesus saw when she looked at his cross. And we need to learn from her and be good students of her extravagance toward him. It's impossible for anything we give to or for Jesus to be a waste. But do you know what is possible? Do you know what is terrifyingly possible? It is possible to waste everything that Jesus has given for us. And that's where I want to end. Right? It is, I mean, do you believe, friends, this is really important, do you believe it's possible to waste the cross of Jesus Christ? I hope you do because it is. It is possible to walk away from the cross. It is possible to refuse because of some other treasure or some other attraction, uh, whatever it is, to refuse to see the cross through Jesus' eyes. And friends, that is the greatest waste of a human life that is imaginable. It is the most unnecessary tragedy there ever was. Jesus in Luke 13, I read this on Friday, says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Literally, right, agonize 
to enter through the narrow door because the gospel is worthy. Jesus is worthy of your, of my utmost exertions and struggle. So friends, if you do not know where you stand today with Jesus Christ, if you have seen yourself now through the lens of the woman's extravagance in comparison or in contrast with the disciples' numbness, and you've seen that you, are, you may be on the disciple side of the ledger, a ledger, I just plead with you to strive, to strive, to not just throw up your hands and say, God is sovereign. Don't blame God for your indifference or coldness. He has called you and given you grace to move your orbit closer. May he grant now that you will have no rest until you do. Let's pray. Father, there are lavish gifts that you are pouring out upon each heart here right now at this instant. And I pray that by your spirit, we would not let them pass. We would seize them. We would seize them by faith in Christ and in sincere repentance and as an act of love, lavishing our will and our hopes and our desires upon the one who lavished himself first upon us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.